All right, who doesn't like money? You know, when in doubt about what to give someone for a present, money always works. My grandma Carter, that was my mom's mom, had nine children, and therefore lots of grandchildren. Every Christmas, however, she had a special gift for each of us, a silver dollar wrapped in tinfoil with a curly ribbon on top, and I still have one of mine. My mom then started a tradition of giving each of her grandchildren a dollar for every year on their birthday, and she usually tried to do it in creative ways. Marilyn now carries on the tradition and actually made origami roses out of a $10 bill, a five, and a one for Grace's 16th birthday. Our youngest grandson, however, has taken getting money for his birthday to another level. He wanted a money birthday. So we hung fake money around the house, and Selena decorated his cake to look like a $100 bill. Marilyn found a, a money tree plant and clipped six $1 bills to it, and when she carried it in, he got all excited and said he was never going to take the money off the tree. Then, to top it all, his other grandparents, and I stress the other part here, his other grandparents gave him a real $100 bill to add to his collection of dollars. He doesn't spend them. He just collects them along with his Pokemon cards. I was corrected already. It's not Pokemon. It's Pokemon. But what do you think? What do you think about that? You know, Will's sixth birthday obviously went over the top. But is it really a good thing to give kids money as a present? Does it teach them the value of money or just make them want more? And is wanting and getting money really a good thing for any of us? Obviously, we need money to get the things we need and want. But what should our attitude be about money and the pursuit of riches? Well, it should come as no surprise, but even Christians don't agree when it comes to money. In fact, there are two outspoken extremes in the Christian community when it comes to riches. On the one hand, you have those who preach a gospel of prosperity, declaring that God wants his people to be rich materially, that if you're right with God and have enough faith, you'll be driving beamers and living in mansions. The Christians should be the wealthiest people on earth. On the other hand, you have those who proclaim it's immoral for Christians to be rich, that all wealth should be redistributed equally, and that if you're faithful to God and really trust him, you'll sell everything you have, move into a slum, and work in a soup kitchen. My question is, where's the balance? It's been said that heresy is truth out of balance, and I think that's what we have here, opposing heresies on the question of riches. The Bible doesn't teach either heresy. It maintains perfect balance 
on this question, and that is nowhere more evident than in the sixth chapter of 1 Timothy. In fact, the teaching in the sixth chapter is almost paradoxical because it speaks of the love of money as the root of all kinds of evil and then goes on to show how riches can be a means for good. Now, the verses that deal with these two aspects of riches aren't actually side by side, being separated by a a personal exhortation to Timothy. But for the sake of this study, we're going to skip over that exhortation and bring these two passages together. Next week, we'll add Paul's exhortation to his closing remarks in our final message from 1 Timothy. Today, we're going to look at two passages on money, the first of which presents an aspect of riches that is indeed a root of evil. 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. Now, my guess is that only those who didn't hear about the record $758.9 million won by a single winner or the $1.6 billion shared by three Powerball winners avoided at least a tinge of envy. You know, in spite of the depressing stories of lives ruined by lottery winnings, most of us still think we could handle it. Wanting to get rich, however, is a very dangerous desire. In fact, Paul says those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. I doubt that you thought of that when you bought a ticket, pulled a lever, or threw down a dollar. I trust you noted the progression in Paul's argument, a progression from wanting to get rich to ruin and destruction. It begins when we fall into the temptation of wanting to get rich, when we are lured by the prospects of getting rich, not by working hard and benefiting from the fruit of our labors, but by playing the odds or making shady investments, by doing all sorts of things that can entrap us and more often than not put us into financial bondage, forcing us to continue taking chances or making deals in the hopes of getting out of a tight spot. And then if it works, if we do find ourselves getting rich, the noose tightens. We find we now have the resources to fulfill our foolish and even harmful desires, so we begin to fulfill them, only to discover that they are insatiable. The more we have, the more we want. 
Before long, the things we accumulate, our possessions, begin to possess us. They take over our life. And the things that are really important get pushed into the background. Our desire to hold on to what we have and get even more then often leads us to compromise our convictions and utilize our newly found power until we no longer care who gets hurt in the process. And finally, our unchecked desire for riches plunges us into total ruin and destruction. We will have lost everything of real value in our quest for riches. Now, what is the cause of this problem. Was it riches? No. It was a desire for riches. It's not money that's the root of evil. It's the love of money. And in reality, it's not even the love of money. It's a love of the things money can buy and what money can do for us. It's a desire to have everything we want and think we deserve. It's a desire for power. It's a desire for status. It's a desire for security. And money does give us a feeling of security. Like a squirrel, we feel we can rest comfortably through the winter if we know our tree is full of nuts. So in reality, it's not a money problem. It's a heart problem. And that's how Jesus diagnosed it. Didn't he say, no one can serve two masters? For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve God and mammon, God and money. That's the problem. If you're looking to money to supply your physical and emotional needs, and you've devoted yourself to working for money, you'll stop looking to the Lord to supply your needs. And you'll stop working for Him. And if you continue on that path, before long, you'll join the ranks of those who, longing for money, have wandered away from the faith. Paul's choice of words here is very picturesque. The word translated wandered was used to refer to the orbit of planets. He's saying that if we let go of the proper center to our life, we go out of orbit. And as a planet out of orbit is bound to end in destruction, so it is with those who make money in the pursuit of money the center of their life. They end up piercing themselves with many a pang, with many griefs, because not only does selfish desire lead us to do evil to others, but in the end, evil overtakes eternally those who make money the center of their life. That is the negative side to riches. And it's pretty negative. But there's also a positive side. For riches can be a means for good. Jump down to verses 17 and 9 through 19. Paul tells Timothy, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited 
or to fix their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Now, do note that Paul's instructions here are not for those who want to get rich, but for those who already are rich. How they got rich is not the issue here. They may have at one time been caught up in the quest for riches and still have money in the bank, but repented. They may have inherited their fortune or may have just been born into an upper middle class American family. Or God may have simply blessed their labors in an extraordinary fashion. However, they ended up in the condition they were now rich. And the question was what to do about it. If being rich was in and of itself evil, Paul would have told them to get rid of their riches immediately and to do so in a way that no one else could get rich off of it either. Perhaps he would have ordered them to spend it all on buying food for the hungry. So when the food was gone, the wealth would be gone for good. But he didn't. He didn't say that. Instead... He instructed those who are rich in this present world to, first of all, examine themselves. Make certain the riches have not made them conceited. Now, just because you're rich, you shouldn't assume you are better than anyone else, or smarter than anyone else, or stronger or even more favored by God. You just happen to be richer than most. That's all. And then he says, make sure you don't fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches. Don't look to your riches for security because they may not be there tomorrow. You know, while it's not wrong to make reasonable and responsible provision for tomorrow, it is wrong to assume tomorrow is secure because of what you have today. What you have may be gone in an instant, a crash in the market, a natural catastrophe, an act of violence, an extended illness. It can all be gone. And even if it's still there, it may not be able to help. So don't bank on your riches. Bank on the one who richly supplies our needs. You know, riches may be gone tomorrow, but God will always be there. So count on him. Tie your security to him. Build your life, your hopes, your dreams on him. And they will never come crashing down around you. And I love the fact that Paul instructs us to fix our hope on the God who supplies us with all things to enjoy. Did you notice that last word? Enjoy. It's not wrong 
to enjoy the things God gives us. It's no sin to enjoy the luxuries of life. God made this a beautiful, luxurious world, and he intends for us to enjoy it. So it's not wrong to enjoy what God sends our way. We don't have to feel guilty if God sees fit to bless us abundantly and even over abundantly. Prosperity and abundance can be a good thing. The key is contentment. You know, Paul said he could be just as content with prosperity and abundance as he could be with hunger and need. It's contentment. And we must never forget that from everyone who has been given much shall much be required. If we are given much in the way of resources, we are expected to use them in a way that will bring glory to the one who gave them to us. And that means we cannot use them selfishly. We enjoy the things God has given to us, but we don't use them selfishly. It also means it's not enough just to do no evil with them. We must do good with them. We are stewards of God's goodness to us and therefore must share his goodness with others. And we do that first by simply making sure our riches do good. We invest them in good works and we invest them in the church. We use them to support charitable and evangelistic organizations. We help meet the physical needs of those who labor in spiritual endeavors. And then, Paul says, we must go a step further and be rich in good works themselves. We get involved personally in the church and in the ministries and the charities we support financially. And we actually go to Mexico and build a house. We don't just send money there. We give of our time and our emotions as well as our money. We allow ourselves to be personally touched by the needs that exist, and then we respond generously, always ready to share what God has entrusted to us. If we'll do that, Paul says we will be storing up the treasure of a good foundation for the future. Not one that moth and rust destroys and thieves break in and steal, but one that will last for eternity. Now, that's not to suggest that we can buy eternal treasure or a ticket to heaven, even though some apparently think they can. Duane left a news article on my desk several weeks ago about a couple in Florida that had been arrested for selling gold tickets to heaven. <laughs> they said Jesus gave them the tickets behind the KFC. <laughs> and that anyone who bought one could simply present it at the pearly gates and get in. Now, it didn't say how much they made, but when arrested, the police confiscated $10,000, drug paraphernalia, and a baby alligator. <laughs> Apparently, there's a market for $99 tickets to heaven. 
But let me assure you that there is no ticket you can buy or earn by good works that will get you there. The only way to heaven and to the abundant life God desires for you is through the sacrifice or his gift of grace made available through the sacrifice of his son. However, there is a financial aspect to our salvation because the way we use our money reflects the loyalty of our heart. And it's the evidence, the way we use our money is the evidence that can assure us where our treasure is. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Where is your treasure? That's where your heart is. If we want life eternal and real life even now, we better make sure we are free from the love of money and free to love the Lord. Now, one day a young man came to Jesus and asked what good thing he should do to obtain eternal life. And Jesus told him to keep the commandments. When then asked which ones, Jesus mentioned several that the young man quickly said he had kept from his youth up. Our Lord then zeroed in on the one he had not kept and told him to go and sell his possessions and give to the poor. But the young man with many possessions couldn't do it for he had violated the first commandment. He had allowed his wealth to become the God of his life. And when given the choice between riches and our Lord, he sadly walked away with his God in his pocket. So what do you do? When the Lord says, come, follow me. You surrender and follow him? Or do you cling to your purse and walk away? The choice is ours. What are you doing now? Let's stand.